Hi, I'm Elise Dayeb, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 15 new Class of 2022 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Julian Brave Noisecat, a Class of 2022 11th Hour Fellow. Julian is Vice President of Policy and Strategy for Data for Progress and a Fellow of the Type Media Center. He's a columnist for Canada's National Observer and contributing editor with Canadian Geographic. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, and other publications. He is currently working on his debut nonfiction book, We Survive the Night, which braids together reportage on Indigenous peoples in the United States and Canada with personal narrative. So Julian, congratulations again on your acceptance this year. Um, before we start the conversation, I'd love for you to just give me an overview of your project that you'll be working on as a fellow with us. Well, thank you so, so much. I'm super excited about the New America Fellowship and really excited to meet and work with the other fellows. Uh, the project I am working on has been a few years rattling around in my brain and in my reporting life. Uh, it's my first book and it's tentatively titled, We Survived the Night. It focuses on indigenous peoples in the United States and Canada today, what our story is, um, as well as sort of my place in that story and my life as a young writer and reporter and sometimes activist uh, chasing and trying to understand uh, that story. Great, thank you. So as you think about your first book, and I'm sure this is a question you've gotten often from your publishers, but you are trying to tell a broad story of Indigenous life, both in the U.S. and Canada, and with experiences being so unique um, and nuanced within different communities, um, I'm curious about how you're thinking about the structure of your narrative and what will hopefully be the through line as you kind of tell these stories. So my book will be structured in three thematic parts. The first part, uh, which will combine elements of reportage with personal narrative uh, is called Apocalypse. And it's about indigenous peoples as post-apocalyptic peoples. The second uh, thematic part is called Odyssey. And it's about indigenous peoples on a long literal as well as cultural and spiritual odyssey to return to and reclaim home in multiple senses of that word. And the third section, uh, also thematic, is called Prickster. And it's about Indigenous peoples navigating the tensions and seams uh, between indigenous and colonial worlds and institutions. Um, and each of those sections, as I suggested, will both have stories from my reporting following various characters and communities and leaders and artists and activists sort of navigating these realities, as well as sort of the ways that these um, larger themes have come up in my own uh, life and in my own sort of, you know, coming of age and, and things of that nature. I know when we spoke a few months ago during your interview, 
you know, the conversation about this being your first book came up. And so I'm curious about how you're kind of taking in this experience and what's been challenging, what's been exciting. And yeah, just like, I'm sure that you've been through a range of emotions as you're working on your first book, but I'd love to just hear a little bit more about what this experience has been like for you before I dive a bit more into the, into the book itself. Well, I would say that at first it's been really scary and intimidating. Um, you know, it's one thing to write a shorter article or even a longer magazine piece, uh, but it feels like quite another to take all of that material and organize it into, you know, uh, a cohesive whole that builds and has a longer narrative arc and, you know, doesn't just feel like a collection of stories and pieces from your portfolio. And I would say that I also, you know, feel a combination of uh, responsibility and also uh, privilege to a certain extent to tell these stories. The, the truth of the matter is that, um, unfortunately, the story of the first peoples of this continent and this land uh, is often not told. And even when it is, it's very much confined to the past. We are very much seen as indigenous peoples, as, you know, living artifacts. And, you know, that means that telling our stories in the present, you know, is, is cutting against decades of, of silence and decades of misconception and stereotypes and things like that. And, I feel a lot of responsibility to get that story right at the same time as I feel very lucky that, you know, over the last six years or so, uh, and, you know, as I continue to go out into Indian country to report this book and to speak to my own family, uh, that people have entrusted me with their stories and experiences. Um, in many of our cultures, you know, stories are viewed as intellectual property of, of sorts. There are certain stories, for example, that can only be told at particular times of year. There are certain narratives that belong to families or songs that tell narratives that belong to families or clans. Um, and I, you know, I think about my material very often in that way, that it's, it's, uh, it's a gift that people give me these stories and, you know, uh, give me the agency to write them and, and tell them. And I want you know, I want I want those beautiful narratives and those hard narratives to, um, you know, be told with as much care and grace uh, as possible. Because you know, the reality is that we often do not get that as as native people. Yeah, it's beautifully said. So your book is tentatively titled "We Survive the Night," and from what I recall from your application, it is a translated phrase um, from Sikwapmak. And so I'd love for you to describe the phrase, what it means to you, and why you felt like it was the right title, at least tentative title, um, for this book. So in late May of 2021, um, just a few months before having this conversation, grave, an unmarked grave uh, with 215 bodies of children, some as young as three, was discovered on the, the, the premises of the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Uh, it was an assimilationist uh, boarding school where thousands of Native children were sent over the decades, uh, including my own Kea, my own grandmother. It's actually where she got her nursing degree. And 
you know, I live in many ways, um, and my family has lived in the legacy of that history. And in my sort of process of over the last number of years, um, learning some of our language, a language that was quite literally beaten out of children at these residential schools, um, including children like my cat, who's one of our last remaining fluent speakers, I came across this word that was the traditional morning greeting in the Sequetmuk language. Um, and instead of literally meaning good morning, uh, the word is chokwinok. And it actually means, uh, if you literally translate it, you survived the night. And thinking back across this history and also, you know, its, its legacy in the present, um, I think that those words meant and still mean a great deal to our people, you know, imagining the mornings when, you know, entire families died of smallpox or, you know, the mornings after children were taken away to residential schools on cattle trucks or the mornings when, you know, for various reasons that still ail our communities, whether it be incarceration or public health ills or substance abuse, you know, our relatives, um, you know, pass on, I think that it must be and, and was a really powerful thing, a very meaningful thing to say that, you know, you survived the night to your family, to your loved ones, to your community in the morning. Uh, and yet, you know, the knowledge of that word and, and that greeting, you know, is fading even within our own communities. And I think that, you know, attached to that, there's already so many different stories that could be reported and told um, that I think really speak to, you know, who we are and, and the experiences that we have had, uh, not just as Sequetmuk people, but as indigenous peoples across North America and beyond, you know, that can come from just looking at those very small, even those smallest sort of uh, versions of our, of our human interaction and reality. Um, and so that's sort of the, the origin of, of the title. Um, and sort of an example, I guess, of the kinds of untold and, and examined stories and and words and parts of our culture that that I really want to you know get into um, in this book. When you think about impact, both with regard to the book and your work at large, I'm curious about what you hope people will take away from reading this book or reading your other work, both for Native and non-Native citizens, you know, as they, as they kind of get a better sense of who you are and what you're hoping others will take from it? I hope, of course, that my book has impacts. I, um, in addition to sort of my life as a writer, I've spent the last few years in the world of think tanks and NGOs and activism and advocacy, primarily focused on issues related to climate change, climate justice, and Indigenous rights. Uh, and of course, I would love to see policy change on all of those subjects. And I hope that my my book can contribute to those campaigns and efforts, and you know, get some of the backstory and uh, you know stories around those ideas told in a way that is compelling to decision makers and readers and the public. But more broadly, you know, I think that one of the biggest challenges we face in American society, particularly as indigenous peoples, is that we often aren't even seen in the first place as change makers, as people in the present day, as, as the protagonists of progress. You know, 
Uh, we are often viewed still as, as people who are stuck in the past, whose most significant contributions to the history of this country ended in the 1800s uh, with the, the closure of the frontier. And, you know, at the very basic level, I think that how people and groups and communities are perceived um, is incredibly impactful on their ability to lead and to shape policy and to, you know, demand change. And so, you know, from sort of a 30,000 foot view, my hope would be that my book helps contribute to seeing indigenous peoples as offering real insights and contributing in very meaningful ways to some of the big challenges that humanity faces today, whether that be, you know, questions of climate change or environmental protection or biological diversity or human diversity. I think that firstly, you know, people need to be seen as agents of change. And that's hopefully what, what this book can help, help do. Mm, that's helpful. You mentioned in your application that there's often uh, unwillingness to kind of really think of Native communities in terms of contemporary society, right? And to kind of take their issues um, into accord. And so I'm curious about, and you kind of alluded to this in your response, but just how that unwillingness to kind of really consider their experiences, Indigenous experiences into present day, like how that has hurt our society overall, but when taking it into account, like how it can help. So I would point to a number of different, or we could point to a number of different examples of this, but I think that one of the most prominent is probably related to questions of environmental land, water and fisheries and wildlife management, sort of essentially humans relationship to the other than than human world and how we manage and reciprocate to that world. So one of the more fascinating things about environmental management and policy at present is that after a long period of very, I would say, extractive uh, relationship to the natural world, whether that be to you know, the fish in the ocean and our rivers, whether that be to forests and the way that they're managed uh, or wildlife and, and things of that nature. A lot of the sort of cutting edge ways that you might actually manage fisheries or forests or wildlife are actually starting to converge back on indigenous modes of managing those things. So in the fish in the fisheries, you know, for example, um, you know, controlling the and limiting the amount of catch so that the you know the fish can replenish themselves over years. Uh, when it comes to forestries management, you know, exploring ideas like controlled burns that indigenous peoples have used, you know, for millennia in North America to manage the natural world and to make sure that you know we are living within our means and that it can continue to supply the things that we need. Uh, and similarly, you know, in relation to uh, various forms of wildlife and and game and how we related to those and controlled the amount that we hunted and had understandings about the commons and things like that. All of these ideas that I think are now through indigenous peoples themselves and also through the sort of ecological crisis that we are more broadly experiencing uh, with climate change and mass extinction and, and things of that nature are you know, now sort of at the cutting edge. And I think that, you know, having indigenous voices, if, if we were more present in a lot of these conversations, 
inner power, you know, views and practices which had been effective for for millennia were were heated. I think that we would have more effective solutions and practices to to manage a lot of these problems. And I think that's true beyond uh, just sort of, sort of the set of ecological and environmental problems as well. Um, but because you know we have had a practice in North America, you know, in a in a government and society that was uh, founded and and run for much of its history by you know people who took this land um, or inherited this land from first peoples. You know, we very rarely have have heard from those perspectives in the ways that we actually make laws and and policies to, to govern these things. So it sounds like there's more of an awareness around these issues. And if that is the case, particularly when it comes to the indigenous perspective, why why now is there more of an awareness compared to before? I would say there's a number of factors, but probably the most significant has been, you know, the growing power of indigenous peoples in our movements over the last number of decades. So beginning in, in the 60s and, and sort of continuing uh, through the present, you know, indigenous peoples have consistently advocated for, often pretty effectively, our right to self-determine, for our rights and for our sovereignty. Um, and you know, through movements like uh, the movement to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline, which you know, was international news and, and galvanized you know, a generation of millennial and Gen Z indigenous activists. I think that more and more indigenous peoples are entering, you know, the political sphere, cultural sphere, you know, economic issues and having a real, real say on those matters. And, um, you know, that's why we now have, um, in the broadest sense, why we now have, you know, folks like Interior Secretary Deb Holland, you know, setting uh, some of the most significant sort of policies that this country is going to pursue with regards to land management, environmentalism, and indigenous rights. Um, so, you know, I think that that um, this is just something that has been happening um, over the last 60 or so years in indigenous communities across North America, but largely in a way that has been unrecognized. You know, I think that Native people are on the rise, but uh, many have failed to, to recognize this in part because, you know, many um, don't care to look or, or even sort of pay attention to what's happening in Indian country. So you've written quite a bit in the past few months about Secretary Holland's appointment as Secretary of the Interior. And so I'm curious about what this means for you uh, to have her appointed in this role and for the community at large. You know, Secretary Holland, it's hard to overstate the importance of Secretary Holland's nomination as the first Native American cabinet secretary and the first secretary of the interior who comes from uh, Indian country. You know, the secretary, the interior department oversees about a fifth of the nation's landmass, um, vast uh, reserves of, of natural resources, as well as the nation-to-nation relationship between the federal government and the 574 federally recognized tribes across this country. And, um, you know, past interior secretaries have explicitly stated, you know, there's, there is one interior secretary in particular named Alexander Stewart, who, you know, described his role as to assimilate or annihilate Native peoples uh, in the 1800s. And I think it's hard to overstate 
the significance of a Laguna Pueblo woman who not only, you know, is part of that history, who inherited that history, whose parents, whose grandparents were sent to, you know, the boarding schools, um, and who herself, you know, went to the encampments in the path of the Dakota Access Pipeline and cooked green chili stew and tortillas for the water protectors. Um, I think it's hard to overstate the significance of that representation and what it might embody um, for, you know, First Peoples. Uh, we have never had in the United States a Native Cabinet Secretary, someone on, you know, in the highest echelons of the executive branch of government, you know, across the table from us. And I think that we're all incredibly hopeful that this might embody, you know, a moment for real transformational change, not just politically, but also, you know, culturally in terms of, you know, what is possible for Native people in American society. At the same time as, you know, there are, of course, you know, we live in a, a form of government with um, checks and balances, uh, you know, where it was in, in, in intrinsically designed to make uh, change, you know, difficult in a number of ways. And so at the same time as we, we know that there will be real limits to what can be achieved through those avenues. So I think that it's incredibly exciting. Um, and, you know, I, I will also just add that I was, I was incredibly honored to, to help tell the secretary's story from the time that she was a candidate for Congress all the way through to her nomination as interior secretary and to, you know, in, in a small way advocate for her. And um, in that I think that that part of the story, all the people who stood up behind her and fought for her is, is also incredibly important because not every, you know, politician or leader gets, them. you know, not everybody has people who want to go out and fight for them. And she was absolutely someone who, you know, people across the country uh, wanted to fight for, and I think still want to want to fight for because you know people understand how meaningful her leadership is. So earlier this year, you were included on Times 100 Next List, and so I'm curious about what that meant to you to be included on that list, particularly as your work is being respected, um, and when you cover environmental justice and climate justice um, in a way that I think might not have been recognized before. Uh, it was pretty far out to be on the Time 100 next list. Um, uh, you know, there were so many incredible people on there, like Dua Lipa, Doja Cat, uh, Chloe Zhao. Uh, even the like sort of starting point guard for my fantasy basketball team was on there, Luka Doncic, which was pretty crazy to be on a list with, you know, someone who I, who I was, you know, trying to win my fantasy basketball league with on my team. And, you know, I think that it was incredibly generous uh, of Bill McKibben, who has been um, somewhat of a sort of mentor, you know, figure for me, both in a very supportive way and also in someone who I can like send, you know, work to occasionally and get his honest thoughts on it so that I can continue to improve on that, you know, to get to get his very kind words as part of that award, I guess, or that recognition. You know, at the same time, I think that it was significant that um, you know, an indigenous person could be seen again as like, you know, someone who was worthy of recognition on a, on a list like that. I got to imagine that various lists from time and others have been put together and, you know, there's rarely a native person on there. And, you know, again, it's obviously an honor whenever someone chooses to recognize your work in a small or a big way. Um, but there's also, of course, you know, responsibility that, that comes with that. And, um, 
that's fascinating to me, but it's also, uh, you know, something that I, I don't really take lightly. And coming from the history and the family that I come from, I, you know, I'm really honored that I get to, to do this kind of work and um, that I get to have a say in not just, you know, issues related to Native people, but also, also issues related to, you know, environmentalism, the climate crisis, questions of racial justice, progressive politics, et cetera. I get to be curious and to ask hard questions and to continuously sort of learn by doing, which is really, really cool. So final question, um, and one that I'm sure you get often from your publishers, but as you embark on your fellowship year this year, where do you hope to be with your project a year from now? Oh, I I hope that I get a lot of writing and reporting done in next year. Um, But more than that, you know, it's it's weird. In the age of social media, you both have, um, uh, you know, a bajillion possible critics and readers of your work online. And then also it's really hard to find editors and readers and peers who can really, you know, look at your work and like make useful constructive criticisms and give you feedback and, you know, really help you look at it from new angles to continuously try to get better, right? Like um, writing and every other sort of art and craft uh, is a, is a game where there's infinite room for improvement, which is both the frustrating thing about it. And I think the thing that keeps a lot of us coming back to it is like continuously trying to get better and better and better. And so the thing that I'm really you know excited about is, you know, there's so many people um, journalists and, and and other figures, thinkers, intellectuals, filmmakers, et cetera, who've had the New America Fellowship, whose work I like deeply, deeply admire, um, who, you know, I would love to be fraction as, you know, talented with the written word as as they are. And I think it's really excited, it's really exciting to me to to get to work with um, peers who are also very invested in thinking about these kinds of things. And um you know, to work with each other to try to make our projects as good as they can possibly be. I've wanted to write a book for so, so long, probably most of my conscious life. And uh, I get to do that. And I also get to do it, you know, now with a community of other writers and intellectuals who are all going to be trying to do similar things, uh, obviously on different subjects, as good as we can possibly do it. And so I'm excited to throw myself into that. Great. Well, we're thrilled to support you this year and look forward to seeing your project come to life. So thank you for your time, Julian. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2022.